0: Well, good evening. How are you? Let's, uh, we want to pray for Santos. That was a good idea to pray for him before he goes, uh, out. Uh, I was out. I was in New Mexico on, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We did an outreach, a crusade, uh, I did it with Raul Reese at, it's called Duke Stadium. It's their local version of a baseball stadium. And we saw about 1,400 people come to know Christ in those three nights. So it was a really neat outreach. And, uh, We dedicated the new uh, wing of the church building that uh, I had been working on for a number of years, and it's done. And then uh, I also went to a prison. I'm trying to get um, Santos set up to this one prison. They'd asked me to come for years, and I finally made it there this time. And we visited this one place called the God Pod, which if you're on really good behavior, you get to to go to in this prison. And uh, these guys sang, as they sang songs of worship. I just thought, give me 10 of these guys uh, in every church in America, and you bring revival. Because these guys sang. They weren't just going, they were singing at the top of their lungs. They were excited about the Lord, and um, a great transformation occurred in that prison. They get the gospel shared to them, and there's discipleship and Bible study. And... um, it was interesting. Raul shared his testimony, and then I went out and prayed for him, and I introduced myself, and they all applauded. And a couple hundred of them said, we go to your church here in Albuquerque, or we used to go to your church here in Albuquerque. And so Raul said, what are you teaching them there that they're all ending up in prison? And, uh, let's pray for him. Lord, as Santos goes out, we pray that your spirit would go before him, give him the words and the opportunities, Lord, unveiled before him we pray that you'd use them powerfully at each of the events especially you'd open up doors for prisoners to know how to be set free those who are gripped by drug alcohol abuse we pray you'd set them free bring many to know you and encourage him as he goes in jesus name amen i'll give you a report good love you get out of here Also, I'm supposed to announce Saturday, October 23rd from 3 to 5 p.m. at Doheny State Beach is a baptism and a a beach day, barbecue. We're going to provide the burgers, the buns, and the hot dogs. So we want you to come out. Um, Not only if you haven't been baptized, but we figure that the more people giving testimony to those people being baptized, the better. Let's make it a party, and we want to invite you to watch people Uh, give their public testimonies of faith in Christ at this baptism on the 23rd. So uh, we invite everybody to come. Uh, It's going to be Saturday afternoon, so uh, make it a point of of being there. I've been in India and other countries where when people make a commitment to know Christ, uh, it's at the risk of their life. And many of these people in Hindu nations will get up and form a procession and walk down Main Street in their village in India, uh, giving a public testimony that, you know what, I'm different now. I'm called out of this culture, and I'm called to make a difference in my culture, and they do it without shame, going down to a local river to be baptized. So it's a great public demonstration. They want to make sure as many people can see it as possible. So we want to follow suit. That's the 23rd at Doheny Beach. We'll make more announcements, but I thought I'd let you know. Oh, that's my amp. Let me uh, turn that on. Much better. Open your Bibles now to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, if you wouldn't mind. In verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, sometimes when Paul says finally, he doesn't mean it. You'll see it scattered throughout some of his writings. He'll say, finally, but then he just goes on and on, and he'll say, finally, again, and second or third time around, it's the real one. This is the real one. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that i may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which i am an ambassador in chains that in it i may speak boldly as i ought to speak but that you also may know my affairs and how i am doing tychicus a beloved brother and faithful minister in the lord will make all things known to you whom i have sent sent to you for this very purpose that you may know our affairs that he may comfort your hearts Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, these verses are known to us. We have read them before. We've meditated on them. We've heard sermons on them. We've read books about it. Tonight, we pray that your spirit might show to us in a fresh manner how these apply to us and how we can wage warfare with victory. Lord, show us practically how we can grow in grace and in knowledge, that we can know the schemes of the enemy, his tactics, his plottings, that we might live a victorious Christian life, for we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think Hank Hanegraaff this last weekend, did he preach on this very text? <laughs> okay, well, you get a double dose. I guess the Lord has a message for all of us. You know, if of all of the descriptions of a Christian that exist, probably the term fighter doesn't come to mind. Comforter, counselor perhaps, peacemaker, one who loves and encourages. And yet, here in our text, we find out the part of the Christian life is that of being able to fight well, fighting a good battle. One of the greatest books that I have ever read and has influenced my life is a book by Donald Gray Barnhouse called The Invisible War. And the premise is based on this text, that there is this Cosmic battle going on for the hearts and minds of people everywhere since the beginning of time. The invisible war. Think back for just a moment to the day or the night when you first made a commitment to Christ. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember how you felt? Do you remember when you first said, Lord Jesus, be my Lord and Savior? And perhaps you can even get in touch with some of the emotion that you experienced on that day or that night. Maybe joy. Maybe a sense of peace that you never knew before. Maybe you walked out of that building or that crusade knowing that you had a sense of purpose. And maybe you had that realization, God is my father and he is my friend and you're correct. But... Because God is your new friend, you have now inherited his enemy, the devil. A lot of people don't believe in a literal devil. Of course, you know better. You've done business with him. But here it is. You have stepped into the kingdom of God. And by so doing, you have stepped onto a battlefield, a battlefield. So that now you experience this strange dynamic. An inner peace on one hand. and inner conflict on the other hand. That sense of purpose. That sense of direction. That abundant life on one hand. But that life of conflict on the other hand. Why? Well, it's because before you had a nature dominated completely by Satan unknowingly, perhaps unwittingly for most. But then you gave your life to Christ and the Bible says you have a new nature given to you. And the old man, the old nature and the new man, the new nature are at odds with one another. And there's this constant battle and conflict, spiritual warfare. You can't make it through the new Testament without coming up with all sorts of military metaphors, uh, Descriptions of the conflict of the believer. And no wonder, because Paul himself was in prison and probably at this time was chained between two Roman guards and was able to scope out what they were wearing and how they were using them even perhaps. Maybe he could look from his window and see uh, soldiers, the army, going through maneuvers. How they used their sword, their shield, put on their helmet, etc. And he writes now about Christian warfare. But it's not the only time. For instance, Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Timothy, you must endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Two chapters later, at the end of the book, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. In Jude, verses 2 and 3, where it talks about defending the faith. Literally, it's put up a good fight for the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. So, the battlefield is something that shouldn't take us off guard, although, honestly, when most people are counseled, when they first come to faith in Jesus Christ, the counselor doesn't tell them, necessarily, what's coming up. It's... You have peace and joy and read your Bible and fellowship with other Christians. But we ought to put in there, oh, by the way, there's now a target on your back. You say, well, why don't we share? Well, you know, could scare a lot of them away, perhaps. But I think we ought to be honest with them. Tonight we want to look at that, and not just look at that, but how to have victory. Just let's go over where we've come from so far in this book. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the first section of the book of Ephesians. And I've likened the book to a grand canyon, the grand canyon of the Bible. You get such vistas in our relationship with God. So chapter 1, 2, and 3, the theme is the wealth of the believer. Who you are, what you have in Christ. Chapter 1 opens up in the courts of heaven. The term, in Christ Jesus, found 27 times. In the heavenlies is another phrase. Chapter 2 takes you to the bank to find out how rich you are. The riches of His grace, Paul speaks about. God who is rich in mercy. Then it goes on to describe that God will take all of eternity to unveil the riches of His grace toward us. Then in chapter 3, we end up in the living room, and we, de- we figure out, we see who our family is, Jews and Gentiles, and the wall is taken away, and we all have an intimate fellowship of brother and sister with one another because of the cross at Calvary. So that's the first section. Interesting that Paul takes three chapters to tell you and I who we are, what we have, what God has done for us. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we come to section 2, the walk of the believer. Paul takes us to the shoe store, you might say, and says, put on your walking shoes. It's time to leave the study and find out all of the great theology that you have. And it's time to live these things, to walk. So in chapter 4, we're taught how to walk inside the church among Christians and outside the church among unbelievers. Inside the church, walk in unity. Outside the church, walk in integrity. Then in chapter 5, we're taught to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, and the hardest part, how to walk at home with husbands, wives, parents, children. And then tagged on to the end of that is how to walk with employers and employees. Now the final section of the book. The warfare of the believer. You have the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. And in verse 10 to the end of the book, which we just read, we smell the smoke of the battlefield. And we understand quickly and poignantly, and this is where Paul leaves us, the Christian life isn't a playground. It is a battleground. And uh, I don't know how you feel about the military involvement overseas. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to take a poll. But I'll say this. If you're a pacifist in spiritual warfare, you're toast. Because whether you like it or not, you're in the battle. You're in the army now. So you need to learn what's available to you, how to fight, and more importantly, how to win. Otherwise, you'll fall. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. And we discover who our enemy is, our real enemy. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The first essential step in winning a war is to find out who you're fighting. Who's your real enemy? That's the role of military intelligence. They study the enemy carefully, understanding where they live, what are they doing, what's their next move. I've always been impressed at Israeli intelligence. I lived on a kibbutz in Israel for a period of time, and I met with people and talked to them. They don't divulge anything, but, but the Israeli military intelligence is astonishing. It has to be, because you have a little country— the size of Massachusetts, surrounded with millions and millions and millions of people who'd like to see them destroyed. So you've got enemies everywhere, and recently they've been able to get even into Damascus, Syria, and plant Mossad agents there to study the movements of their enemies, the Hamas group, when they plan their suicide attacks on Israel and take out some key leaders. They know who their enemy is, and they know their every move. Who's ours? It says... The wiles of the devil. Enemy number one, the devil. Enemy number two mentioned in verse 12. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In other words, the devil has a bunch of buddies called demons. In the year 2004, the idea of a literal devil makes most people who aren't Christians, if you just mention that you believe in God literally and the devil literally, what's the reaction? (laughs) You're so lame. How superstitious. Now, according to one poll taken of the American public, 70% of Americans believe in the devil. However, half of them believe in a literal devil... Half believe that it's just figurative. In a recent Barna poll, a statement was made and people were asked, do you agree with this? Do you disagree? Do you agree somewhat? And here was the statement. The devil, Satan, is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. Do you agree or disagree? 32% who called themselves born-again Christians, 32% of these born-again Christians said, we agree, there isn't a literal devil who's a living being, it's simply a symbol of evil. Well, if you fall in that camp, and you call yourself a born-again Christian, and you'd say, well, I don't believe he's literal, I don't believe he's a living being, then understand something, you are disagreeing with the Lord Jesus Christ, who believed and said that he was a literal being. He said in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What's he referring to? Something figurative in the past? A bad dream perhaps? No, something he saw historically in time past. And there's two passages of scripture. I'm not going to ask you to look them up, but you might want to write them in the margin of your Bible or tuck them away in your heart, in your mind. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, and the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. In Ezekiel 28, Satan is given the pseudonym, the king of Tyre, but he's called the anointed cherub who covers. He had an exalted position at one time before the fall of Satan at some past time in history. The second is Isaiah, chapter 14, where... We see that the devil, Satan, usurped his will and authority over God, which, by the way, is the essence of all sin. Sin is simply saying, I want my will, not God's will. Five times the devil said, I will. And and here was his deal. I will be like the Most High. He was, when he was created by God, numero uno. Minus uno. And it was the minus one that really bothered him. So his aspirations is, I don't want to be the anointed chair of the covers. I want to be number one. And God at that point, and it's recorded in the Old Testament, said, you will be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. That's what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 10. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus taught then that Satan was real Jesus also taught that Satan was personal and had a personality. There's a conversation that Jesus had with Simon Peter toward the end of his ministry. And he said, uh, can you imagine this if Jesus walked up to you and said this? I, I imagine Jesus put his hand on Peter's back and he said, Simon, Satan has been asking for you that he may sift you like wheat. Whoa! I mean, that would get my attention. I'd say, well, what'd you tell him? (laughs) Jesus said, but I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. So Satan is real, Jesus taught, and Satan is personal. Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist from Chicago, said, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, the Bible tells me so. And number two, I've done business with him before. And every born-again Christian who loves God and follows God sincerely does business with him. The only way you don't do business with him is when you're dead or so carnal that he's won anyway in your life. And if you're going, I don't have any spiritual warfare, it ain't a good sign. It's a good sign if you have... The spiritual warfare. Now the word devil in this text means accuser, because that's that's one of his chief jobs. Is it says in the Bible, he accuses you before the Father day and night. Now, have you ever thought of it this way? It should make you really happy that the devil hates you and is your enemy. He said, really? Yeah, really. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I'd rather have Satan as my enemy and God as my friend than God as my enemy and the devil as my friend. I'd much rather have the devil as my enemy rather than my friend. So, is he your enemy? Good. It's a good position for him to take. In verse 12, it's unveiled a little more about this spiritual warfare. We get insight into this verse in just a few descriptive words of a highly organized demonic system in the unseen world. We do not wrestle, he says, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Most every scholar will agree that these are rankings of demonic beings, sort of like you have general and colonels and lieutenants and privates all the way down, that there's a highly organized system, a hierarchical system, where they understand their rank and orders given and are dispatched accordingly. In Revelation chapter 12, it indicates that a third of the angels that were created by God, fell and became demons and went with Satan in this great rebellion. For John, in Revelation 12, says that the dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And if you read a few verses down, it gives them the title, Satan bringing angels down to the earth and they become demonic beings. Now here's a question. How many are there? We don't know exactly, but I'll say this, a whole lot. A whole lot. How do I know? Because in Revelation chapter 5, John sees heaven, and he sees the throne, and he sees the Father sitting on the throne, and the elders casting their crowns down, and the angels of God worshiping. And he says there were 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands upon thousands. Now, I don't think that means that he got his calculator out and said, I think that section is about a hundred and I'll times that, okay, a thousand. I think it's simply this description of innumerable angels around God's throne. Okay, if a third of them fell, that's a lot. Or actually, that's probably the ones left, so it was an even bigger group. Now, I want to bring a little balance to this. There are demons, Satan has his minions, and they're out to study you. They're out to trap you. They're out to tempt you. And and they've been doing it for thousands of years, so at least give them the credit that they know what they're doing. It's a practice trade. That's the bad news. And usually that's what most Christians focus on. The devil's out to get me. But what we forget is two-thirds didn't fall. Okay, a third of the angels fell, and they're the demons, and they're out to, but they're outnumbered. A third fell; two thirds didn't fall. That's good news. Do you remember the story of Elisha the prophet, and he had a servant named Gehazi, and there was a problem going on up north in Damascus of Syria. It would seem that whenever the king of Syria would plan an attack against the children of Israel, God would tell Elisha the prophet, Elisha would go tell the king of Israel what the king of Syria was about to do. So every time a plan was put in place, a counter plan was maneuvered through the prophet Elisha. This so bothered the king of Syria that he said, One of you guys, my men, my army, close to me, you're a snitch. You're ratting me out. Which one of you is telling the king of Israel my plans? And finally, one of them spoke up and said, It's not any of us, O king. There's this prophet down in Israel named Elisha, and he tells people what you speak to your wife in your bedroom. So he said, Well, let's find him. Let's kill him. They found out that Elisha the prophet was staying at a town called Dothan down in Israel. The Assyrian army at night with their chariots and their men, encompass the entire city. To find one guy, root him out and kill him. Gehazi gets up the next morning, the servant of Elisha, and looks out and he sees the enemy encompassed all around the city. And he goes, basically I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing it, we're toast. We're dead. We're outnumbered. And Elijah gets up and looks out and sees the same thing, but he smiles and he drops his head and he goes, Lord, open his eyes that he can see reality. Just then the Lord gave him spiritual vision, the ability to see into the invisible realm. And he saw around the visible enemy were chariots of fire and the angels of God host encamped all around him, ready to destroy the Syrians. So his first reaction in seeing the enemy is poor us. But once God opened his eyes, he thought those poor Syrians, they're dead meat because God opened his eyes. Here's my point. Satan and his demons on their best day aren't a match for God and his angels. And for the life of me, I don't know why so many Christians live in such fear of the devil when you've got God and two-thirds of heaven that didn't fall, they're outnumbered. Now, it's sort of like uh, pitting Michael Jackson against Arnold Schwarzenegger in a boxing match. Do you think Arnold would tremble? little dance is going to go around and Arnold's going to boom, you are terminated. That's it. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Pardon the analogy, but it's your governor, all right? Now look at verse 11, the enemy's tactics. Put on the whole armor of God, and notice this word, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means strategies. Literally, it's methods, methodia in Greek, schemes. It speaks of the studied tactics of, um, well, it comes from the animal kingdom originally, where a predator like a lion would lay low and study his prey and then suddenly pounce upon that animal and destroy. And the Bible calls Satan that he wanders around like a roaring lion. Throughout church history, I think there have been two basic tactics that Satan has used. One is a frontal assault, and the second is kind of a backdoor approach. Uh, One is um, just sort of a direct aggression. Uh, The second approach is infiltration. Satan attacked the church from the beginning, causing Romans and others to persecute, kill, destroy, uh, and harm, imprison a lot of Christians. Every time Rome attacked Christians and killed them, the church grew. Just like in China over the last several years, The Chinese church has had to go underground because of this frontal assault. Every time that happens, the church grows stronger and stronger and stronger. The second tactic, the second while or method of Satan has proven to be much more effective. If you can't beat them, join them. Instead of a frontal assault, let's just join the church. Let's work in and among Christians. So rather than persecution, how about just pollution, polluting people in the pew? Predators in the pulpits as well as uh, pretenders in the pews. That has been an effective strategy. How does he do it? Three ways. A counterfeit gospel. A counterfeit gospel. Remember in Galatians chapter 1, if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than you have heard or that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Number two, counterfeit ministers. The Bible tells us in Corinthians that Satan is an angel of light, and it's no wonder that his ministers can disguise themselves as ministers of light. Number three, a counterfeit Christ ultimately, called the Antichrist, who will emerge because the world will be ready for the counterfeit gospel, counterfeit ministers, and ultimately a counterfeit Christ. These are all methods or wiles of the devil. Verse 14 gives us a little hint into our weapons. Now let's go there. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. The King James Bible, I don't know if you have one tonight, speaks about the girdle of truth. More modern translations take the uh, word girdle away, which is a good thing because you think of a guy wearing a girdle, a soldier wearing a girdle, and you think, Ooh, Is he a girly man? What is that? So modern translations say the belt of truth. And here's the idea. In ancient days, guys wore a tunic. It was a solid garment, had a hole for the head, holes for the arms, sometimes had arms sewn into it. But it was a long flowing robe. It covered the body. Over that was a belt, usually. A soldier had a leather belt. And uh, the soldier could walk through the streets with this tunic on, but in close hand-to-hand combat, because the robe was long, he could trip on it and do a face plant. So to be prepared for a battle, he would take the bottom part of the tunic and he would tuck it into his belt. It was called girding up one's loins or getting ready to fight so that you're foot loose and fancy-free, you can move quickly. That was the idea. So having girded your waist with truth is that you are prepared for battle, and what ties it all together is truth. Just like truth tied the robe together and provided a a platform for the sword to go into the sheath, the truth of the gospel ties everything together in our lives. Christians get ready to fight By being close to the truth. How do we do that? I submit to you that every single day. Whether you're a morning person and you do it early. Or you're a night person and you do it late. Or you like to do it during the day sometime. That you spend a quiet time. In a quiet place. With a quiet heart. You open up your Bible. And you saturate your mind and heart with the word of God. So that that truth that gets in you on a daily basis and feeds your soul, gets you prepared, ties everything together, and gets you ready for battle. Or, it could refer to a truthful attitude, an honest attitude, that you're a person of integrity. You have an authentic, non-hypocritical commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, the belt of truth. Several years ago, I went to uh, China, and the thing I wanted to see, besides some of the leaders in that country, was one of the greatest sites, I guess, pieces of uh, a building architecture anywhere, the Great Wall of China. When the Great Wall of China was built, it was built to protect people from invading enemies. Here was the thought. Let's make this wall tall enough that people can't get over it thick enough that people can't get through it, and long enough that nobody will go around it. Within the first 100 years the Great Wall of China was built, it was invaded successfully three times. They didn't crawl over it. They didn't go through it. They didn't go around it. How'd they get in? They bribed the gatekeeper. See, that was the fatal mistake. So much stock was built in the building of the wall, not the integrity of the gatekeeper. And so, when it comes to our battles, truth, integrity, honesty, authenticity must hold everything together for us. Then it says, "Put on the breastplate of righteousness." The breastplate is either a, a metal plate or a leather plate. With pieces of metal on it that was stretching from the neck down to the waist. It protected the vital organs heart, lungs, liver, spleen, intestines. Righteousness protects the heart. Now, in the Bible, your heart is where you think. Your intestines is where you feel. That's your emotions. That's from a, that's the ancient paradigm. That's the old metaphor. We think with our hearts. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus read people's minds. He said, that the Bible says, he knew the thoughts of their heart. Whereas the intestines is where you feel. You talk about being the the, uh, emotions in the pit of your stomach. That's the vital organs. The heart, the intestines. Two areas Satan loves to attack Christians on is the thought life and the emotions. What you feel and how you think. So, here it says you put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means you recognize you're in Christ. His righteousness has covered you. But it means something else, I believe. I believe it means you live a righteous life which gives you confidence in the battle. It protects you like a breastplate. You see, folks, and listen carefully, our lifestyles either fortify us against the attack of the enemy or make it easier for the enemy to attack us. Our lifestyles fortify us against the attacks of the enemy or makes it easier for the enemy to attack us. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 for just a moment? In verse 7 of 1 John chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, that is, habitually, continually, as a lifestyle. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That is, continually, habitually practice a lifestyle of sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now let your eyes fall down a few verses to the 18th verse. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. One of the common problems Christians face is condemning hearts, and it robs our peace and confidence from God. Here's his point. If, as the habitual practice of our life, it's a state of righteousness and pleasing God, you have great confidence when you come before God. You have great confidence in a battle. It's like a breastplate that, that protects your feelings and your thoughts during that time. Let's go to the next piece of equipment back in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, soldiers' shoes were not as good as they are these days. They didn't have the lace-up boots that go all the way up almost to the knee. They often wore sandals. Sometimes they were closed-toed. Sometimes they were open-toed. But at the bottom of the sandal was nails sticking out to provide traction, grip so that the soldier wouldn't slip but he could stand. And the soldier had to watch to protect himself from sharp, uh, stakes that were planted in the ground by the enemy, sort of like first-century landmines. But the idea is, is that he'd walk carefully, but he could grip firmly. And the point that we're trying to make is the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, in fighting the enemy, we ought to be ready, having a firm grip, a firm stand, always ready to share the gospel knowing that we're saved by grace through faith and being ready in a battle to share that, to share our testimony, overcoming him by the word of our testimony, as we're told in Revelation. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Roman soldiers, how many saw gladiator, by the way? Did you see it? Okay, I'm not recommending you see an R-rated movie, but it was a good movie because it shows you this whole battleground at the beginning, this whole battlefield experience. There were two types of shields that the Roman soldier had. One was small and round. It sort of looked like an inverted Frisbee because the edges were curled in. It was placed on the left forearm, and it was accompanied by a macaria, a sharp, short, 18-inch sword for hand-to-hand vital combat. But the front lines had different kinds of shield, large, rectangular, two and a half by four and a half feet, either metal on the front or most often leather soaked in water because the arrows, the fiery darts of the enemy were thrown over, were cast either the javelin or the arrows, and the ends of those arrows were soaked in pitch, cotton with pitch so that the fiery darts would hit and splatter But having a shield soaked in leather would quench them. The shields in the front were were placed not far apart but locked together so that it formed a solid wall of shields. Imagine four and a half feet tall locking shields marching as a wall coming toward the enemy. It speaks of unity in battle, shield locked with shield, faith locked with faith, marching forward, brother and brother, sister and sister in the Lord, able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. How often doubt, fear, temptations, imaginations come our way. And, and, and then it's like the arrow that hits and splatters and fires go everywhere. We start being inundated and assaulted with other thoughts like, How can I really be a Christian and think those thoughts? I must be totally backslidden. I love God and I'm in his word and I have faith. But all of the thoughts start escalating. That's when you need your shield of faith linked with other shields of faith, the body of Christ encouraging you, not a lone ranger, not off on your own, but the fellowship of the spirit marching forward as a solid unit. Now, when it talks here about the shield of faith, What kind of faith are we talking about? Not saving faith. That's past tense. It's trusting in the promises and the power of God. It could be something as simple as making a declaration when you're surrounded with fear. Saying, I believe God. I trust God. God hasn't left me alone. I'm standing on his promises. I'm standing on his word. It could mean a prayer with another brother or sister. Hey, link shields with me. Let's make a prayer of faith. I'm going through a difficult time. Or it could be that you're part of a support group, a home fellowship, where you share your needs, your temptations, your assaults with the body of Christ who will help get you out of that quagmire. Look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet the word helmet, and I'll be brief on this, comes from two words. It's in Greek, perikephalia. Peri around, cephalia, cephalic, the head. Pericephalus, around the head. It was either a solid piece of metal or it was leather once again with pieces of metal. What was it there for? To protect your head. Against what? Against arrows. But more importantly, the broadsword. That was often trust behind the shields to get the soldiers in the second row. That helmet was important. It protected the mind. And our thought life, our mind, is so often where the enemy comes to attack us. It's unfortunate that a lot of Christians think that the mind isn't all that important and they, there's a false dichotomy. They say, well, it doesn't, it's not your mind isn't that important. It's your heart. What does your heart tell you? When well, the Bible, once again, they're synonyms. The heart is the mind. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But there is this sense among the Christian community, among some parts of the Christian community, an anti-intellectualism. Don't study, don't go to school, don't get a degree, don't be smart, because it's not about your mind, it's all about the heart. But I love 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We've come up with several other scriptures, but this is a good one. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or as the prophet in the Old Testament said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Sharpen your mind. Study the word so that at specific times you can pull out the promises of God and assault the enemy. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here's your offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit, the Bible, which Hebrews 4 says is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and he preached? And when he preached the gospel and he told them about their sin and about the coming judgment, in Acts 2, around verse 37, it says, The people that heard were cut to the heart. And they said, What must we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of our Lord Jesus. But it's interesting that the scripture that he used and the way he applied it cut the heart. That's the sword of the spirit. And I submit to you that one of the reasons Christians fail in temptations is they don't know how to properly use the scripture as a sword. Satan attacks them. Thoughts come into their minds. Uh, Temptations assail them. They don't know what truths are in the Bible to counterattack. Or as a defense or an offense. Now, Jesus used the word of God very strategically. Remember when he was tempted. And with each temptation, Jesus said something. I'll run it through quickly. On that mount of temptation, Satan first came and said, Command these stones be made bread. Jesus said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Then Satan came again and said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus said, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan came again and he said, All these things and the kingdoms of this world I will give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you s- serve. So when Satan came with a specific temptation. Jesus pulled out a specific scripture that was his defense and an offense—a sharp sword. Now, how do you and I do that? I'll give you a simple suggestion. There are some Bibles out there that have quick reference systems in the back or in the front, and they're they're itemized according to um, uh, category: addiction, oppression temptation family whatever it would be there's all sorts of scriptures that deal specifically with those topics so that in a fix in a jam you can turn to it and over time you can memorize those scriptures and it's like the sword of the spirit piercing now we'll finish up very quickly praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all things. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may be op- that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you notice that when Paul says, Here's what I'd like you to pray for me about. It's not personal comfort. It's all about give me the boldness to go out and speak the gospel because I'm going to live for Christ and I'm going to die, which is gain anyway. So just make sure that you pray that the doors will be open wide for me to be bold. But that you may also know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. He was a uh, convert of Paul's from Asia Minor who was in Paul's first imprisonment and became an ambassador to him. Whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen. A closing thought. You'll notice that when it comes to spiritual warfare, we're told to pray. As I see it, when the enemy comes to attack me, the only one I'm told to talk to is God. Not the devil. You never find Paul the Apostle doing what I see certain people doing on television or advocating they do from their pulpits, and that, that is to address Satan directly. And I hear people doing this almost as if they're praying to the devil. Satan, we want you to know something. And devil, and, and, and they'll carry on prolonged conversations with him. Well, the Bible tells me, resist the devil... And he will flee from you, not carry on long conversations and pray to the devil and rebuke him to, you know, don't even talk to him. Even Michael, the archangel, didn't bring a railing accusation against him, but said rather the Lord rebuke. So let God be the one that stands between you and the devil. Listen, don't flatter yourself. The devil isn't scared of you. He's not. It's the God inside of you that he's scared of. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. March forward on your knees. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, desirous to truly be skilled warriors at fighting the enemy because his attacks will never cease until we're in glory with you. So give us Not only your wisdom, but give us the knowledge of the Word of God so that our our minds are equipped with the helmet. Our vital organs, our heart, as well as our emotions, our feelings are covered with righteousness. That our feet are always ready to stand and to tell people the truth which strengthens us in the battle. And Lord, help us to be aware that if Satan can't attack us through direct persecution, he will try that age-old method of infiltration trying to do it from within among us. Help us to stand girded with truth and stand in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Having said that, let's all stand.